Welcome to the Feeling the Pale podcast. I'm Greg Ashman, and my very special guest for this episode is Jasmine Lane, who is an American teacher and a writer about all things education. Welcome, Jasmine. Hi, Greg. (laughs) I'm really pleased to have you on here today. I've been reading your stuff for some time. Um, Now, um, you've written about how back in 2010, so just 10 years ago, uh, you were still in high school yourself. So could you tell um, me a little bit about your journey uh, to becoming a teacher from, so I suppose, from the, the back of the class to the front of the class. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, um, I actually had zero intentions of ever doing anything in education. Didn't, Didn't we want all? to be a teacher. Um, I mean, a lot of people told me that I would be good at it, but like I grew up really poor, and all I had in my mind was that teachers were just like living in poverty, so I was like, not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I am definitely not poor anymore. Uh, yeah. Teaching is not that bad. No. Uh, but I started out in chemistry, and then it just it didn't do the things that literature does for me. Um, I was good at it, and I enjoyed it, and like I liked giving presentations, but people, were, people asked me, they're like, you're really just going to be in the lab all day? Like, that's what you're going to do. And then I was like, I mean, maybe. Um, (laughs) And then just a lot of things happened. I started tutoring and then I started majoring in uh, cultural studies in in addition to chemistry. And then I dropped the chemistry and it was like, what am I going to do with books? Teach them. So then I just, you know, tried a couple of things and it just kind of, when I started working with students, it just fell into place. Did you have a moment where you thought, ah, this is it. This is the thing now. I, I get it now. In terms of like, I decided like I'm. This is the this is the right field for me. Yeah, yeah. It was after I um, I did a teaching fellowship. It's called Breakthrough Twin Cities. Funny, they give you a scripted curriculum to use all summer, so that you can develop how to teach. Um, it was after that summer and seeing my students like progress over just like six weeks that kind of sealed the deal for me. And I was like, you know, this is it for me. Um, it was really really satisfying to see them grow. Well, there's something really special, isn't there, about um, knowing that the kids can do or can talk about things or or just um, have a capacity now that they didn't have before and that you've been a part of that. Yeah, I mean, it's just having kids learn something new and then kind of knowing that you were part of it. It's still kind of weird for me to think about teaching. It's just like, I told you something (laughs) and that made you think about something in a different way. And now you know something new. Like it's, it's really strange, like reciprocal kind of um, relationship, but I think teaching is, it's the best job. It is. It is. Now, um, obviously to get to uh, the, from, to use my trite phrase, from the back of the classroom to the front of it, you have to uh, get your teaching credentials, you have to do your training. So can you describe a little bit about what that was like? Um, Yeah, so my undergraduate, it's not in teaching at the university that I attended, you have to get a undergraduate, a bachelor's degree in your content area. And then you do a a one year certification afterward. Um, So I actually took a year off after I did my study at uni. Um, just to get, I was like a teaching assistant for a year, just to get like an idea of what a school year was like. And, oh, sorry, it's the something outside. Um, (laughs) So I took a year off and then I was a teaching assistant and went through some ups and downs with that. And then I, when I went into my certification program, I had like, of the rest of my cohort, I had like the most experience, even though I really didn't have that much. Um, and so I assumed a lot of things that had already maybe been taught. I was like, okay, so like, obviously like kids are being taught like how to read. They're being taught like, you know, their math facts. Cause I was taught all that stuff. So yeah. going into that program when they're talking about like relationships or like the, you know, books that look like your kids, it was just like, well, duh, like, of course. So it just, I had a lot of assumptions. And so over time they kind of started to, my assumptions started to go away. Um, the more I learned about what actually happens in schools. There's um, an interesting paper, I mentioned it before on the podcast, by um, uh, a guy called uh, Greg Yates, who's at the University of South Australia. I think he still is. He might might have retired. And he wrote a paper called How Obvious. And he um, writes about how um, when he presents people with the evidence and teacher effectiveness research, they go, oh, that's just obvious. I knew that already. You didn't. And he finds it quite frustrating. But when you actually look, you ask them what's important for a teacher to know you know, to, in order to be an effective teacher. They come up with things like, well, you've got to have good relationships, you've got to be empathetic. And he says, well, that, yeah, <laughs> but, but 
that's like saying a doctor has to have a good bedside manner. What are the things that the teacher actually needs to know in order to do their job? And, and I think we spend a lot of time in this space about, um, and good relationships are important. And if you are <laughs> like, if you struggle to form relationships with kids, you're going to struggle to be a teacher. And I think that's an important point. But they're not. But good relationships are not enough, are they? I mean, you've, you've got to know how to teach kids how to read and things like that, surely. Right. <laughs> so none of that. None of that in my program. Um, <laughs> but lots of. What did you think? I, I did so many reflections over the course of that year, and I'm like, you know, I'm really tired of reflecting. <laughs> um, I'm tired of making these little mini lessons where we like try to shove as much technology into them as we can. Um, and I'm tired of just make a lesson plan. It's like, how? Teach yeah. me how? And it well, what do happens. you think? Well, get together in a group <laughs> and di discuss what a good lesson plan would look like. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, can you give us an example? And they're like, it just, you know, it really depends. And I was yeah. like, I was like, okay, you guys, I have this one lesson plan from this thing I did like three years ago. And it's from a, uh, like a curriculum that they built. So look, look at it and then see what works. So it ended up me just being like, I got this stuff for my teaching fellowship. Hopefully some of it sticks. Lots of it depends. Did you, were you exposed to any of the common myths like um, learning styles or left brain, right brain or any of those sorts of things? Yeah, I remember um, multiple intelligence is, is kind of like debunked, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, Dil, uh, Dan Willingham writes about it quite well. It's a nice idea, but it's, um, they all kind of, all, what any, whenever you identify it, I think, and I'm not a cognitive scientist, whenever you identify these intelligences, they all essentially correlate with each other and correlate with the un underlying factor, I think. So, yeah, yeah essentially. Yeah. That was a very long-winded answer to, yes, I think it has been. <laughs> yeah, so that one, and then I remember for uh, my, like, the capstone for finishing the program, you had to create, like, 12 weeks of curriculum for your student teaching placement, and it said, how are you accounting for different learning styles in your curriculum? Like one of the big questions you had to answer. Yeah. And by that time, like I knew that all that stuff was nonsense, but I just made up an answer. And I was like, this is so bad. <laughs> how did you know? Was, I mean, I went, I taught for, oh, nearly 10 years um, before I knew kind of officially that some of those things are nonsense. I kind of felt it from sort of practical experience that a lot of these ideas just didn't really work. But it was at least 10 years into my teaching career before I, I actually started to see the evidence like, and read and read people like Dan Wing and things like that. So how did you, how, because I'd like, I'd like more people to get there. How did you realize so quickly that these things were nonsense? So it has to do a lot with how I remember being taught as a child. I yeah. remember sitting on the carpet we did our flashcards with all the sounds. We practiced blending and segmenting. We clapped syllables and all of that stuff. Yeah. And I remember drilling my math facts for like years and like loving it, doing around the world, like going against your classmates. Um, so I, again, I assumed that all that was already happening for everyone yeah. because I didn't go to a private school. I didn't go to like any kind of like special. I just went to the one in my neighborhood, um, which is like, you know, underfunded, whatever you want to say about like where I went to school. Um, and so Emily Hanford wrote a piece, like, why aren't, why are millions of children not being taught to read? Yeah. And then I remember I read that and I was like, when did they stop teaching phonics? Um, yeah. Like in the way that I was taught, I was like, I learned how to read that way. Um, and I remember I posted something about it. And then like all the people that I had been, this was on Twitter, yeah. all the people that I had been following at that time, all kind of railed against it as being like racist and authoritarian and like Whoa. all these like ridiculous tropes about like teaching kids to read and it was at that time that um I kind of started to really question a lot of like who I had aligned myself with yeah and then um a colleague of mine who's now a good friend um John Gustafson at that time had just stumbled upon um Craig Barton's podcast yeah and so he was sharing ideas about like effective instruction with me and I I was really skeptical of it because I was just like I don't know, John, um, but then when I read that piece from Emily and then I saw like the typical, like very like progressive, we want to use those labels, like the progressive teacher um, response that kind of made me question a lot about what I was being taught. And it, it just kind of, um, what's the word where it like snowballed. All clicked into place. Yeah. 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 It, like, oh, goodness. It's interesting you mentioned those labels. I mean, the thing is the, the debate between 
progressivism and traditionalism has been going on for over 100 years in education. There's a, um, have you read uh, Jean Shaw? I'm never quite sure how to say her name. Jean Shaw, the Academic Achievement Challenge. Um, mm -hmm. So she, heard her name. she writes about basically three times over a period of something like 50 years, she's debunked um, alternatives to phonics in big reports, but she sees these alternatives come back. Um, and so, so this thing's been going on a long time, but I do think that the, the, the words are not always helpful because um, I think of myself, well, <laughs> times are very strange in the moment, but I broadly think of myself as politically progressive, but I wouldn't sign up to the um, progressive um, education ideology because I don't think it works very well. But I just worry that so many teachers who often have left of center political values think, oh, I must therefore align with this set of teaching practices. And I'm, I'm wondering whether the, the words get in the way a bit because of that. Yeah, I mean, I went through the same thing too, because I'm also, I mean, you can ask me about any political whatever, and I'm on the left very yeah. much. Um, and then it's like the things that I believe about education, it's strange to me that they're seen as like conservative or like yeah. right wing, because it's like, if we know that teaching kids phonics helps them read better, how is that anything but progressive? Um, yeah. So I, I do feel like, especially here, like the label progressive or traditional, like those just, in the United States, those really cloud any kind of argument. So I try to not Avoid put those them. on if I'm talking to people who are like, I don't like, I don't like what you're doing. Nah. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> it's not a progressive thing. It's not a traditional thing. It just is. It's good yeah. teaching. It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's like, I think I've said this before. It's like saying a particular way of doing surgery is right wing, whereas the alternative is like, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? These are just sort of, well, they should be technical matters of what works what's more effective. Um, uh, now, um, obviously we've been, as alluded to, we've been through quite a tumultuous year. Um, we're in lockdown still here in um, Victoria. We're hoping our, our, our numbers of new cases have gone down. So there is light at the end of the tunnel, but we've also had lots of um, political uh, upheaval. And in June, uh, in the aftermath of the, the brutal killing of uh, George Floyd, you wrote, I want to tell my students that this horrific war on black people, this real threat to their lives, is also the very reason they must fight distraction and engagement from education. Would you like to uh, expand a little on, on what you meant when you wrote that? Yeah, I mean, so if you want to change a system, you kind of have to be able to get in the door. Um, so if you want to change the law, like you can form a protest with a sign for like weeks and weeks and weeks. But if you want to change how rules work, you need to be able to become a lawyer. Or um, if you want to change, like uh, you want to look at like healthcare disparities, like more black women die in childbirth than anyone else in the United States. It's like crazy. So if you want to fix that, you have to be able to become a doctor, right? Yeah. Like you can, you can, there's only so much you can do if you can't access those spaces of power. And so that's how I really frame education. Like, yes, we learn for pleasure. Yes, like learning is cool. Yes, reading books is fun. But this stuff all kind of leads up to you being able to decide, like, I want to look at this issue and I want to be able to fix it or at least work on it. Um, and you can't, you can't do that if you kind of just say, give up. Um, and for a lot of people, it's like kind of our only choice. It was my only option. I, I mean, it's not like I had like family money or anything, um, you know, self-made. <laughs> That's my family. <laughs> I think it's interesting, isn't it? There's two, I think there are two perspectives. I'm trying to get away from the progressive traditional label. And um, I think there's two, I think most people involved in education want, want a better world. Even the ones that maybe are coming from a, a conservative viewpoint, you know, we might disagree on what it looks like or how to get there. But I think most people do want a better world. But the, the big division seems to be between those who, put, to put it crudely, want to fit kids to the world as it is, so that the kids can then change it. And then those who just want to change the world, so that it fits to the kids. And to me, it just seems like the former is just more realistic and more, more possible and ha has more scope for actually getting stuff done. I, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, if, if we take like a critical race theory lens to all of this, like white supremacy is not going to end. 
um, it's pretty much going to go on forever. It's going to continue to perpetuate itself. Toni Morrison said, um, as long as racism is profitable, it will exist. So I think trying to just like eradicate it um, is just not an effective way to go through this. I think it's, you kind of have to accept like there are some things that are going to be in the way. And if more people continue to, you know, see the issue as it is and try to fix it, and more people from different backgrounds come together, then we can address the way it is. I just, I don't see, you know, thousands of years or hundreds of years in the United States, whatever. I don't, I just don't see that toppling over just by saying, burn it all down. Um, Cause then that just, it creates its own issues that way. Nothing will be perfect. And I think it'd be better to see what we have. There's already so much stuff. It's already so messed up. Just chip away. That's kind of how I think I, that's how I think about it. So just expanding on that theme a little bit, um, and you've written about this, um, Shakespeare. Okay. Shakespeare's I actually from not very far from where he was born. So he's, uh, he's in, um, he was born in Stratford and I was born in, in Dudley, which is not very far away. It's just the other side of Birmingham, the uh, big city in the middle of England. So, um, I can see how, and people argue all the time about whether Shakespeare is relevant, uh, in England, they certainly argue about whether teaching Shakespeare is relevant in Australia, that the language is difficult. Um, so what, what possible relevance, and I'm being, I suppose I'm being slightly provocative here, what possible relevance would Shakespeare, and Shakespeare's play, this dead old white dude, have um, for you know, kids in inner city, Detroit or, or Minneapolis or, or somewhere like that? So, we talk about the field of English, like kind of central to it, right? Uh, English literature. So if you, if, you, if you reject that idea that there's, there are authors and people that are more important, then I can't really change your mind there. But again, if you want to look at it through a lens of power, there are people, say you need to take an exam, there are people that are assuming that you've read these type of texts, that you've encountered this type of language, that you can read you know, Epic of Gilgamesh, which is like one of the first stories kind of written. Um, and if you don't kind of at least look at some of that stuff, then you're effectively, as the teacher, you're effectively cutting off any sort of access or opportunity there. Um, so I think it's great in its own right. Um, once you understand the language, the plays are amazing and they're fun to read and they're funny um, and like tragic, you know, if you want to go there. But if you want to look at it from a lens of power that also it always comes into play like how are we making sure how am i making sure that my students have lots of opportunities in the future um and reading shakespeare is one way to ensure those do you think inner city kids um can relate to the the stories and the themes in something like shakespeare or is it just so foreign from their experience that they can't imagine themselves into that world um i mean the themes are just about people and relationships. Romeo and Juliet, two kids defying their parents' orders because they want to be together. Um, Hamlet, like going through loss and having your the, your uncle and like treachery and treason and all of that stuff. Like these are themes that exist within any group. Um, and so if you're the teacher and you're not talking about those, I guess I'll call them universal themes or at least bringing out those themes that we can relate to, then of course kids aren't going to relate to it because it doesn't make any sense. But when I studied Othello with my students last year in the inner city, one of my students said, he said, I never understood jealousy until we read this play. Wow. So, That's I mean, the power it, of literature, isn't it? Yeah. And it's like 400 years ago when we, he, Shakespeare wrote like, you know, when you wear your heart on your sleeve, the kids were like, oh my God, I've said that before. And I was like, yeah, he kind of made it up. Um, so things like that are also just cool to understand you know, 400 years ago, you're reading something that's been read by people for 400 years. Um, so you're also a part of like um, the continuation of knowledge. And I think that's also powerful in its own right. I think so. And it's interesting you should mention the um, Epic of Gilgamesh because I remember reading that and um, thinking uh, that this, this story is so ancient and yet it has a lot in common uh, with uh, Bible stories. And in fact, some people I think, and I'm not an expert in this, that there's an influence, a, a sort of cross-fertilization between the two. And our kids, uh, one of the things that they um, study in our primary school, at, at my school, because my school's like, um, it goes from prep, kindy, all the way through to year 12. And in our primary school, they do um, uh, Norse myths. Um, Neil 
Gaiman has written a, a really interesting book on Norse myths and they study that. And it's all, uh, as you can imagine, you know, blood and guts and um, fighting and, and they love it. Uh, completely alien to the world that they live in. But, and of course, when you think about little kids, they're not desperate to remain in the world that they inhabit in the everyday. They're quite keen to escape to, you know, uh, fairies and uh, monsters and mm-hmm. uh, imaginary lands. So, so the idea that they're kind of limited and can't apprehend these other ideas, I think is a bit of a, a bit of a false one. Um, there's a guy, um, oh, what's his name? Oh, I've forgotten it now. Uh, oh, that's it. Kieran Egan. So, I don't know. Stop, stop me if, if, if you know this already. Uh, he's a, um, he, he wrote a really good book on um, education, actually, uh, called Getting It Wrong from the Beginning. But he wrote, he wrote this paper um, on um, John Dewey and the Expanding Horizons curriculum. And he makes exactly this point that, um, and I don't, I don't know, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm not from the US. We, we had a very different approach. But he says that US um, social studies curriculum um, has been affected a great deal by John Dewey. And it starts from the idea that before kids can learn any history or geography or anything like that outside of themselves, they have to start with their own family and they have to start with their own environments. And he argues that actually kids are capable of understanding it. You can tell kids about the ancient Romans or, or whoever, and they will, they will get it because they were, they're used to imagining themselves into faraway places and different stories and things like that. And he, and so he sort of rails against this idea. Um, and I think that's, I don't know. Uh, did, what are you? For what does the is that right about what the social studies curriculum looks like in the U.S.? What I've seen a lot of in in maybe like when they're like five to eight years old, it yeah. is a lot of that. What is my family like? Um, how do we get along with other families? And it's the content is kind of weighted, um, or they kind of push it aside until maybe um, when they're nine years old. Um, and so by that time, it's like they don't really know how to read, how to decode very well, and they haven't learned a lot of school knowledge either, so then it's just setting them up for failure. Um, but it's the same idea. It's just like you can learn about your surroundings, but then the, also the world is a lot bigger than just your backyard, um, and particularly for students like myself, you know, who didn't travel, didn't go to like museums or things like that. School is that place where you can kind of do, sorry, where you can read things other than yourself. Um, and again, like, it's not saying like who you are isn't important, but the world is bigger than you and that it kind of shapes how you think about yourself in the world. Um, and I think that it, it makes you see people um, as instead of like, they're so different from me. It's just like, wow, like what makes us humans? What makes us connect? Um, yeah. And going and back to your, absolutely. And going back to your earlier point, um, Hirsch, uh, Edie Hirsch would say, um, that it's things like the ability to read the New York Times, uh, they will assume, as, you, as you said, people assume knowledge. So the people who write articles in the New York Times assume you know stuff and they, they miss those bits out because otherwise the articles would be really long and full of caveats and really tedious to read. So they miss out all these things that they assume are common knowledge, but they're common, the things they assume are common knowledge are um, often, you know, uh, little bits of essentially social studies curricula, you know, knowing about the the ancient Romans or whatever. And if kids don't get exposed to that, then they're going to struggle to read those articles. And then if you can't read something like the New York Times, then how, and I'm not saying the New York Times is the be all and end all. It's just the example that Edie Hirsch gave. How can you engage in the political process? How can you mount a campaign? How can you get your op-ed on the pages of the New York Times? Right. Um, What I worry about sometimes is I think, you know, if we're not teaching students to read like difficult texts or like giving them like the background knowledge about them, then it really just becomes like whatever we put up on our PowerPoint slides, like as our little bullet points, that's what they know, that's what they remember. Um, so they don't really know the information for themselves. It's really just like, well, you know, the cis hetero patriarchy, like all those terms. And it's just like, do you really know what those terms actually mean? Um, and they might not just because they haven't really learned about them. They kind of just had a teacher throw them up on a screen. Um, not to dismiss those things because they exist, structures exist, but you know, if if I'm going to teach about them, I'm going to do it in a very different way than most teachers probably would. And uh, just uh, continuing that theme, really, you've also written about the importance of um, teaching 
kids standard English. But I suppose the argument you, you get against that, first of all, you have this semantic argument where people say there's no correct English. And then you say, well, actually, I'm not talking about correct English versus incorrect English. I'm talking about standard English versus other dialects of English, which sounds a little less um, uh, confronting. But still, people then say, yeah, but, you know, doesn't it, even the notion of standard English and teaching standard English, doesn't, isn't that disrespectful? Doesn't that disrespect the dialects that, that kids grow up are using from diverse backgrounds? Doesn't it say to them, you know, this isn't right, you need to conform to some other um, model? I think it goes back to your point again, like, are we trying to make the world change to us or have us change to the world? Um, and my idea is I'm very aware that my ability to speak standard English and write the way I do has allowed me access to certain places. And I know that I was accepted over a job versus another black woman because I spoke standard English and she didn't um, in our interview. And I, I heard her speaking and I just, you know, it's just, it's an easy way for people who might already have a bias for whatever reason. It's another way for them to discriminate against you. Mm. And so when you're, again, it's the frame, it's not saying like how you speak at home is wrong, but the people that, you know, are the, they keep the gates. Like they're the people on the college admissions. They're the people that are going to hire you. They are the, you know, the whatever else, you know what I mean? It's just like, if they're expecting this of you, like maybe it is white supremacy, maybe it is racism, but would you rather, you know, be able to kind of overcome that, that barrier that shouldn't even be in the place anyway, or do you want to just be stuck outside because they're just dismissing you because you don't speak a certain way? Um, so I, I think it's just, it's uh, something that I've had to reckon with because I do speak African-American English and I speak standard English. Um, and I speak Spanish too. And I know that there's like a higher register in Spanish and a quote unquote lower register. It just is the way that language is. Nothing is wrong, but it's like, if someone's expecting it, um, racism or not, you kind of have to know it. In England, uh, the way you speak is all about class. So I grew up in an area um, um, which is, uh, it's called the black country because it, it um, the industrial revolution and the fact that it, um, it didn't really didn't exist until the industrial revolution. And then they discovered all this coal and iron ore uh, in the, in the area and people came in and then came very industrial and full of soot and smog and all that sort of stuff. And people brought their, cause it was fairly new. People brought their, as I understand it, I'm not an expert. They brought their country accents with them to this area. So it's a kind of urban area, but with a slightly country accent. And it's, it's openly mocked throughout the UK and people mm -hmm. who come from where I come from and from neighboring Birmingham, the stereotype is that we're stupid. Um, so, uh, and I went to university. So I went to, um, I went to Cambridge um, to study natural sciences. And I turned up there and I spoke much with a much stronger accent than I do now. I, I still, to you, I probably have quite a strong accent, but I have this much more, um, what we'd say black country accent and I turned up there and uh, the other thing of course is if anyone outside the area can't tell the difference between the black country accent and the Birmingham accent we're all the same to them whereas we can so I turned up at university and uh, I was uh, it was like the first night when everyone's staying up till five o'clock in the morning drinking coffee and sort of you know full of this enthusiasm for getting to new, know new people and uh, uh, this guy was uh, holding court um, and everyone was listening and we're all supposed to be listening, but he had a, a poster of a tiger on his wall. And uh, I, I pointed at the tiger and I said, do you think that tiger is smiling or something? Well, everyone in the group sort of laughed and it took the attention away from this guy and he didn't like it. And he called me a thick brummy. Um, and uh, I thought, well, I don't like this. And then the next night we're, <laughs> oh, we're I don't like this. <laughs> no. Well, the next night we're in the bar. And I thought, well, I'll give this guy another chance. I don't know why I thought that. So I started talking to him at the bar and he called me a thick brummy again. So me and my mate, um, Steve from Essex, we spent the next three years, every time we saw him, we'd trip him over or, you know, we'd poke him or something. I don't know. And then a, a few years after university, he said to me, he said, why did you used to bully me at university? And I thought, what? He said, you used to trip me over when, when I walked past. And he obviously had this real big thing, but do you not remember? Do you not remember? 
calling me a thick, thick brummy and we sort of having a drink and talking about this. And he said, oh yeah, well, that was awful, wasn't it? How appalling. But I don't know why I'm telling this story, but I'm just saying that it's the way you talk, it's such a big thing, isn't it? And um, it has all these implications and it makes people think of you in a particular way. And the ability to essentially move between one um, social environment to another, it's incredibly powerful to be able to do that. And to deny people the ability to do that, I think is a, it's, it's unfair. I mean, when I was at school, no one ever suggested we shouldn't learn standard English. Um, and in, it, it was just something that we, but, but we just knew there were two things. There was the, the way that we spoke at home, which was slightly looked down on. And then there was the standard English of school. Yeah, I mean, same for me. And again, I, it's all about the frame. Like I told my students, I'm like, there are people that are going to, when I just, I told them my story basically about like what it's like to have grown up speaking African-American English at home and then speaking standard English at school or with some of my friends. Um, and I just, I framed it that way. And then they were just like, yeah, you write, Miss Lane, you write. Um, and then we practice in school. They don't see it like she's forcing something on me. They're just like, yeah, I got to learn how to do this. And I think, I think adults just put this, like, they, I feel like adults think that students can adapt. Um, But like this mindset, like, oh, they're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, they will. And they'll understand if you explain it. Um, And like, there is a correct way to speak standard English. There is a correct way to use African-American English. Like you can't just throw finna wherever you want to. That means like going to. Um, So things like that, you know, like, like standard English isn't correct, but there is a correct way to do it. Um, And I think you have to be sensitive. If you're teaching say a phonics program and you're mapping um, graphemes to phonemes, and you don't understand um, the um, dialect of the surrounding area, the kids that you're teaching, and you say, and, and you use a vowel sound that isn't in that dialect, and they don't understand what you're going on about because you, 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 you're not sensitive to what that looks like. You have to be able to explain, and you have to know, um, particularly um, in Australia, we, we have a lot of kids who, have, who speak indigenous languages um, in the Northern Territory, in Western Australia, in, well, the whole of Australia, but particularly in those areas you have schools that are effectively bilingual and the teachers do need to understand the home language and Mm -hmm. to a certain extent be able to explain the the differences between the two and sort of interpret between the two for kids who perhaps don't use uh, English a great deal. Um, So, uh, where was I? Um, Okay, so let's... Let's get back to this point about that we sort of started on with Shakespeare. Um, there's this thing, now for, for non-English teachers, can you explain what this thing is that we call the literary canon? And then can you, um, can you give some suggestions as to what, what should probably go in it? It's a big question, I know. <laughs> I can explain it. Um, I've been talking about it a lot over the summer because there's nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> so when I think about the literary canon, um, I don't think about it as the canon. Um, I think about it as like in a certain field, there are texts that have been really, really important and very influential in a number of different ways. So if we look at English, Shakespeare is one of them. Toni Morrison is a more contemporary author. Zora Neale Hurston, at least in American literature, um, Zora Neale Hurston was really influential 100 years ago. Um, if you look at uh, it's another field, Sorry, um, if you look at history, like there are certain disciplines that you'll read like this scholar of whatever was really influential in looking at this. Um, so it's just like, what are the texts or what are the ideas that have been really influential? Um, so that's what I think about like a literary canon. And then what was the second question again? Oh, so how do we decide what, what goes in it? Because I suppose I'm connecting to this idea of, um, I suppose it's quite a revolutionary idea that we need to throw this all up in the air and and start again, perhaps. Yeah, um, so what goes in it, it's people with expertise in their fields that get to decide. Um, if you've read four books um, from black authors of all the literature that exists, I don't think that you should be deciding like that doesn't belong in there, that doesn't belong in there because you don't have the knowledge. Um, and so in our schools, that's kind of what the teacher is there for. You're the person with the most knowledge in your school. Um, and you got that from your university training. So in your school, you make your own school canon about like the important things that kids need to know or that we think that are worth studying. Um, so it's 
you know, there is like, you know, you think about like university study that look at that canon is going to be a lot different than what we have our, you know, developing readers um, do. And in, in an American school, who, who decides, so is there other set books that, <laughs> that, that you're supposed to teach or? That uh, curriculum here is a mess. There's no national curriculum. There's nothing like that. Um, it's a student in my district that I work in now. I have, it's, let me start over. What we're reading in the school that I work in now is nothing like what we had to read at the school I worked at last year. And this school is 15 minutes away. Right. This is in the same state. Um, so across districts, across states, there is no uniformity. Um, but a lot of places, maybe because like here you don't have to get a bachelor's degree in your content area, pretty much whatever was ordered 50 years ago um, and was taught, that's kind of what you take. Um, Cause it's what's in the book closet. Um, so there is isn't that, really any. <laughs> is that connected to school funding that basically schools can't afford to buy any new books? I kind of, but also no, I, from my short time in schools, there's a lot of money. Um, maybe they're underfunded or whatever, but they find money for all kinds of really useless things like a day for self-care where you get a yoga mat and a water bottle for right. every single staff. Um, so if you can find money for that, you can find money for new books, but then it's again, teachers without expertise in their fields, just kind of picking up whatever's interesting to them. Um, so it's their interests shape the curriculum rather than like powerful knowledge of the field. So um, it's not, not, so it's not said at the district level then the district doesn't decide what books it's just the individual teachers. It depends on the state too. Okay. <laughs> It's there, there's no way to think about like what the United States does with curriculum. There's no way to talk about it because it varies everywhere. Um, the schools that I'm in now, it's up to the teachers, but in West Virginia with a colleague of mine, the state tells you what to do. Um, in some schools, every teacher does their own thing. In some schools, every teacher has to do the same. It's just, there's, there's no way to know what our students are learning other so, than in that school. Gosh, so if you were a teacher, which you are, uh, I suppose, in one of these schools who, who no one's telling you what books you should be teaching, um, and you get to decide, what, what principles would you use to decide, what do you think are a good set of principles um, that you could use to decide what books to teach? So, um, so what I did this year, I was thinking, like, I want to, like, I can't just ignore what happened with George Floyd, um, yeah. especially because it happened here. Yeah. Um, so, but I don't want to just teach like headlines or just teach like, you know, current events every day because that's, yeah. you know, it's not lasting. And so I thought about it. I'm like, what is the theme that I can, a theme that I can take from this moment? Um, and I'm just like thinking, I'm just like, it feels like I'm stuck. It feels like I can't move forward. And so the question I had is like, what does it mean to dream um, in a time of turmoil? And that's a theme that you can take for the last hundreds of thousands, hundreds, thousands of years or whatever, you know when things are really rough, how do you move forward? Um, and so that's the theme for the year. And that's how I choose text. I think about, or I thought about, I'm like, what text kind of fit really well with this theme? And so that's kind of how I would structure, you know, thinking about texts, um, but then also like grade level matters and all of that. And so what texts yeah. did that, did that, did you arrive on when you were thinking about it that way? Yeah. So um, A Raisin in the Sun, it's a play. Um, it's, she took the title from um, Langston Hughes's Harlem, which says, uh, what happens to a dream deferred is the first line. So that's basically what the play is. Yeah. So I did that. And then we're going to read Of Mice and Men because that play is all about broken dreams and deferred dreams um, and friendship. Um, and then I thought about The Great Gatsby because that book is also about dreams, but it's like the elite dream that's kind of a facade um, yeah. with Gatsby. And then um, a really short thing is um, the house on Mango Street. It's again about dreams, but it's a little bit of a lower level text for the grade that I'm teaching, but you just make it short and it can work. Um, it's kind of a good on-ramp if they haven't done a lot of literary analysis before. Wow. I, I, um, I read quite a bit when I was at university. I didn't study English at all, so it was just reading for pleasure. But I read quite a bit of um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, um, Great Gatsby. Uh, He's from my state. Wow. <laughs> He's tenderest, a state from my <laughs> ten, Tender is the night, is that? 
I'll have that yeah. too. Um, and I read some Steinbeck. I I, I read I liked Steinbeck short stories. Uh, I I'm, I quite like short stories. Uh, maybe I'm a mm -hmm. bit unusual. Um, but uh, the Fitzgerald particular, because I was at uh, a university where there are lots of the people that he talks about. You know, the people who are born into money and and just have a very different worldview because of that, because they've never had to struggle and they're, and they're sort of flighty. And uh, I knew those people so. And, and Gatsby, of course, is the outsider, um, even though, you know, he's got all the riches and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I connected with that quite a bit. But I don't know how I got onto it. I suppose I just, I think I must have just asked around, what should I read? And uh, <laughs> my, my, my friends who were studying English said, oh, why don't, why don't you read that? But I found, I found that quite powerful. Never analysed them in any way, obviously. I just read them. But I, I thought they were very good books. Um, you teach math, right? Or science? Um, yeah, so I'm a physicist. I did physics at university and I teach, I teach senior maths and, well, I, I usually teach senior physics, but I'm not this year. I'm just teaching maths this year. Yeah, so, mm. I, I miss the physics, to be honest. I quite like that. Yeah. I quite like it. I still miss chemistry sometimes, but I wouldn't want to teach it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I've taught chemistry. Um, I quite enjoy it. It's a very different thing, I think. I think, um, you're dealing in, uh, and people do want to, people do want to take the sciences and make them more subjective and more um, personal. And you, you, I, I think sometimes people think who don't understand the sciences or maths um, that we talk about people a lot more than we do. Um, we just don't talk about people at all, really. So no, um, here's how you balance an equation. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. a. a you know, oxygen is going to be O2, no matter how you look at it. Yeah. <laughs> Unless yeah. you separate it. <laughs> yeah. So, so these arguments about, you know, the canon, like who you're going to include in it, um, doesn't, because even like if, a, if, a, if this particular scientist, Newton or whoever, comes up with an idea, it's not really about them. It's about the idea. That's it's what about the teach. idea. It's not yeah. about him. Yeah. yeah. The, the sciences and humanities are just totally different fields. And I think, maybe because I actually have training in both fields yeah. um, or both like realms that I kind of see the difference. Like I would never try to do like culturally responsive math. I don't know what that means. Um, I would just have them memorize their times tables. <laughs> well, it, it's a big thing though, isn't it? And you see it a lot. Um, and particularly, it, I think it's a very, at the moment, it's a very North American thing. So I see yeah. it a lot in uh, Canadian yeah. Twitter and blogs and, uh, but it hasn't made it here yet, but a lot of things do. So I'll be on the, on the lookout for that. But um, I don't really know what it means. And it, if it's going to dilute the actual maths content or the science content, I'm not in favor of that because for all the reasons that we've talked about, you need that stuff. If you want to be successful, if you want to be a scientist or engineer, you need, you need all the details. You can't dilute that away. Um, and so I do think that's quite a worrying development. And the other thing I think is quite worrying is these experiments in these funky new forms of maths, you know who's going to be exposed to them. It's not going to be kids in schools like mine, which are independent schools. It's going to be kids in, um, in inner city schools, in challenging circumstances. It's going to be um, kids from diverse backgrounds. Those are the kids that are going to be exposed to these experiments in new kinds of maths. Um, and that then just exacerbates the the gap in knowledge between um between those who know a lot and those who don't know as much and so i think it's it's incredibly damaging but anyway sorry you you got me onto something that i could rant on about but it's not about that today so um can you tell us a little bit you've been involved in um research ed in the us um uh, can you tell us a little bit about what what it's about uh, what it is and and why you decided to become involved in it um, so ResearchEd is just like the U.S. plant from ResearchEd International. Um, I just, I help out Eric Collins. He's the organizer. He's a teacher. He's the curriculum and instruction lead. He's SLT. Um, he's an author. He does a lot, um, but he also does that. And so pretty much I'm just like, I want to help people get connected to this um, because through ResearchEd is actually how I met you um, yeah. and how I'm connected to so many people all over the world. So I think it's just, it's, it's really an amazing organization to be a part of because you just learn about good practice that isn't like, it can only work with these specific people at this specific school in this exact way. Just like, no, you gotta get better at questioning, Jasmine. Here's a blog of how I did it. 
Um, yeah. And that that's, you know, it doesn't matter who did it or where, um, you know, learning about like GCSEs and A-level and like all those little vocabulary things. Like I learned all that, but um, so that's, the, I really just do that. I'm just, I'm just the hype woman. I don't do that much with research ed. <laughs> but to someone that doesn't know, and obviously I've been involved in um, helping organize it in Australia. So I, I get a feel, I, I've never been to the US one. I'd like to someday, but I, I can, I can imagine what it would be like, but what actually is it? What is research ed? So the way I think about it is just people um, interested in getting effective practice and research literacy into our schools. Um, so right now, pretty much everything is guided by impulse or feelings or really outdated um, and just wrong ideas about how we learn. And so research that is kind of the antidote to that. And what I found is, you know, I don't, I don't, when I'm talking to colleagues, I don't say like, you know, I'm a part of research ed and we do these things. I just say like, hey, you're struggling with this aspect of teaching reading. This is what I did. And it's all based on, you know, evidence informed practices, yeah. but like cognitive science and things like that. So, you know, it's at least for here, it doesn't really matter as much like what you're doing. It just matters that it works. And teachers here are, they're pretty overworked and they're stressed out because you know, kids aren't learning as much as they can be because we're being given really bad curriculum and bad um, instructional tools from our teacher preparation programs. So when I'm coming in and it's like I'm going into my second year and then people who have maybe been teaching for a while are kind of stressed and I'm like, actually, I just taught writing by doing sentence level stuff for a while. And then they're like, huh, that seems mm. odd. But then they try. Um, so that's, that's research that is just making teaching, it also makes teaching easier, to be honest. And this is why I think it's part of the solution. Research Head is obviously teacher-led. So you've got the researchers that come and talk at the conferences, but you also have teachers talking about how they, they use the research. And I think this is why it's the solution. I, I, all people involved in education, I believe, and well, maybe it's something I just want to believe and maybe it's not true, um, but it's a useful belief for me to have, um, want the best things. They want the best things for students. They want students to flourish. They want a, a part of, they want education to be part of a program to essentially create a better world. So I think that all people involved in education are involved in it for the right reasons. But the people you don't hear so much from are the teachers. And this is a problem. You hear, if, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but if you switch, if, like there was a conference in Sydney um, last year, I think. They're all talking about education. They had this panel, not a teacher on the panel. That's all... Um, academics and uh, the sorts of people who you see speaking about education, but not a teacher there. And I've just written an op-ed uh, for the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, and it's on a, a, an issue about uh, suspensions and exclusions in New South Wales. They've come up with a new policy. And essentially, from what I understand, teachers in New South Wales are uh, effectively prevented from commenting because the, of the social media policy code of conduct or yeah. whatever they're not really allowed to take part in that debate it's for other people to to talk about and i think that what we miss out on is as you've described just then teachers are the practical side so they might be just as idealistic as the education professors but they've got to do it when the rubber hits the road they've actually got to make it work in a classroom and so it ideas that are impractical but are well intended um, teachers can filter those out. If you talk to teachers, if you if you get their input into how we're going to do this thing, how we're going to implement this idea, you can filter out some of the the, the more extreme ideas that come out of the other um, areas of education. And so that's why I think that to teacher voice needs to be more prominent. And that's what I think Research Ed can do. And what it does... Um, my perception, and you just said we met through research ed, what you get through an organisation like that is you get teachers talking directly to other teachers, missing out all these other people that usually tell teachers what to do. And a teacher in Australia in an independent school can talk to a teacher in a public school in the US and we can talk about, you know, what works in terms of questioning or writing or the writing revolution or something like that. So I think it's quite, um, I think that's the value of it. I don't know. Uh, whether you have any thoughts on that? I mean, here, um, there's definitely more teacher voice happening, but it's in a lot of organizations that are kind of um, not very evidence-informed, like NCTE, which is the Council for Teachers of English. Basically, everything they do is just, you know, it's just like, let's talk about racism in the classroom. Let's just 
have all of our books reflect our kids. Again, important, um, yeah. but like nothing about like, here's how to teach our subject better. Um, so that's the piece that's really, really missing. If teacher voice is missing in the United States, the piece that's really, really missing is effective practice or even just talking about practice at all. Very rarely do you have someone present on like how they teach something. It's always just, here's how I introduced racism to my kids or something. Yeah, it's all in the abstract, isn't it? It's like, yes. um, and, and the classic, you, you sort of alluded to it at the start, the presenter will come on and say something abstract and then, okay, now talk to your elbow partners about what that should, will look like in the classroom. Whereas what we want to know, <laughs> we're on the presenter to tell us what it should look yeah. like in the classroom. <laughs> and that's what you get from research ed. Yes. Um, finally, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about um, Teach Like a Champion. Um, there's been yeah. some, yeah. So Teach Like a Champion, for, for those who are unaware, who are listening, is a book which, uh, about various teaching strategies, Doug Lamarve um, observed lots of teachers, I'm summarising this horribly, but, uh, and came up with a set of strategies um, that uh, he thinks are effective. They, they're not just about classroom management or behavior management, they span quite a whole lot of different things, but people tend to focus on the classroom management ones, things like SLANT, where kids are supposed to sit up, um, look at, I don't even know what SLANT stands for, but uh, look at, track the teacher as the teacher's talking and all this sort of stuff. And it's been incredibly successful. It's a bestseller book. Um, it's been huge in the UK. Michaela um, Community School in London, as I understand it, have used Teach Like a Champion and uh, embedded some of the routines and they're incredibly successful. They got uh, amazing GCSE results last year, the first year that the students sat them. But there's been this controversy um, it, it, about it being somehow... What the, I think the term used was carceral, carceral pedagogy, as in incarceration, as in something to do with prisons. Um, would you, can, you, can you add a little bit more light to that discussion? Sure. Um, sorry, just I, just, I really hate that, that I just hate that term. Um, yeah. Just like she, she didn't really have any like likes on anything. Then she did that one. It's just like, do you want to get a lot of followers and a lot of likes? Just like shit on Doug, Doug Lamob. Sorry um, for swearing. Um, there's a couple of things you can do. That's one. But it's like this whole idea that like we shouldn't expect students to do certain things in our classroom because it's quote unquote controlling their bodies. Um, but I just, I don't see the book that way. I see it as a set of strategies, um, like a toolbox that a lot of, newer teachers or even more experienced teachers don't necessarily have like the idea of double planning like you plan like some work for your students to do you give it to them but in addition you also have to fill it out and do it to make sure that you know what you're expecting um i have never seen anyone else do that other than myself because i got it from teach like a champion yeah. um and like on the behavior stuff like if that's part of your school culture then that's school culture it doesn't mean that it's the book um but then also, like, I have seen some schools use that kind of, like, um, punitively. So, like, you know, a kid who's not slanting correctly, they'll get a detention that day. Um, and so, like, it can be used in that way. So, like, I get where she's coming from. But that's not the book. Again, it's the implementation. And what I'll also say is you can find schools that don't use Teach Like a Champion that end up um, you know, doing carceral pedagogy with students because they just have them sit in silence and read for 40 out of 45 minutes. Mm. Um, and so a lot of people, what they end up doing is they use curriculum um, as a behavior management tool. So instead of using behavior management ideas like slant or what was it, strong voice and things, you just say, you know, we're gonna do reader's workshop and I'm gonna talk to one of you at a time for three minutes, then you go back and sit in silence. And I've seen that in four different schools. None of them would use Teach Like a Champion. And I um, wonder so whether I all those, that. yeah, I wonder whether all those kids who are reading in silence can read the books that they're supposed to be reading. They can't and they don't. And they have told me, they're like, I have no idea what's going on in this book. And I'm like, yeah, that's, I would imagine that's happening. You're not being taught anything. Um, and I, I also know like here in the US, charter schools get a really bad rap. Like a school like Michaela here, like no matter how well they do, it'd always be, you know, it's a charter school, they're taking money from public schools, blah, 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 things like that. Um, our funding structure is different here than everywhere else. But, and so I know that that paints 
like it kind of poisons the well for everyone when they go in to hear about it they're like oh that's the book that charter schools use so it doesn't even matter uh, if it could be useful it's just the fact that charter schools use it and charter schools you know they do more paced lessons they say like this is what we're going to do today turn and talk to your neighbor for 30 seconds and i'm going to tell you something about it you don't see a lot of that kind of interaction in public schools other than like my classroom again um, but if you came into my class, you wouldn't say that it's carceral at all. Um, and I None. use lots of like a champion techniques every single day. Kids are laughing. They're enjoying, they're talking to each other about schoolwork, of course. Um, you know, not just like free talking because that's not what school is for. But I think it, it just goes back to this, like, are we supposed to mold school to our students or are we supposed to mold them to, you know, academic life? And I take the latter. Absolutely. And I think, um, it's it, people who visit Michaela say it's just a really joyous place and the kids are very happy and it it, it doesn't fit this it just doesn't fit the mold that the critics want it to fit I, I think that, that, that I don't know I can't remember whether silent corridors are actually part of teach like a champion or not there's certainly something that, yeah, that she's I don't, in. I don't I don't remember if they are either no. um but if you want to maximize every day um, every minute of every day and instead of having them spend 10 minutes in the hallway between classes like sure a silent transition in a minute and a half like it's not that big of a deal um it's not like you're having them be in, be silent for 45 minutes um so i think people just they just think that kids can't adapt and being silent for a little bit isn't that big of a deal it's not that big of an, an adaptation um no. But, it, but you can see that it's not that big of a deal. But I think, again, this goes to the, between t the division between teachers and people who aren't doing it. Like, I know what corridors in a, in a challenging school can look like. I know what they look like. And, um, and you probably do too. And I also know that if kids are coming in from outside, they've had their recess, and they're coming in and they come into your classroom, that actually walking silently through the corridors helps... Um, calm them down essentially so that by the time they get to your class they're ready to start focusing on that but I think people outside the profession just imagine I don't know what they imagine I imagine that I think they think that kids are walking through the corridors uh, to paraphrase Catherine Burblesing you know discussing Aristotle or something and we are we are preventing them from doing that um, by making them be silent and again it's this clash I think between the the realities of schools that teachers see and these ideals, these almost platonic ideals that, that, that non-teachers who still have a lot of say over education um, uh, see when they think about these situations. Yeah, I mean, also part of school is just, I think about it, particularly with young children, I think like you're learning how to be a person with other people. Um, so if you don't have kids like learn how to control their bodies and control their mouths, control their limbs, like yeah. you'll have five-year-olds slapping each other in the middle of the hallway. And if you've never been in a school, you'll say, that won't happen. And if you have, you'll say, yes, that will happen <laughs> because they're kids and they don't know yet. Yeah. Um, so like as students grow older, like do maybe do I need like students at A-level walking in silent corridors? No, but if the school did it, I really wouldn't care because they have a reason for it. Um, but, you know, we don't have those here. And I think that, you know, just some kind of rules in the hallway would be nice. Um, but we're all distance learning because our president can't do anything anyway. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> no hallways this year. <laughs> I, I once worked in a school where, which was rebuilt. And it was great because the kids felt uh, valued. It was the most amazing impact it had because we had this terrible old building. I've told this story before on the podcast, but you, you've reminded me of something. It's terrible. And it was knocked down. It was rebuilt. It was beautiful. But the architects who built it had no idea about kids. So they put light switches in the car. We couldn't tell them how to build it either. We had to say, we had to give a specification of what the building should do. We couldn't actually say, so they put light switches in the corridor, which of course the kids switched on and off all the time. Yep. And they put this gap. So if you're on the first floor, you could look over a balcony down to, actually first floors are different in the US, aren't they? So if you're, if you're on the, 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 well, anyway, you could look to, down to the, over a balcony to the floor below. And of course, kids threw things and spat. Mm. And of course, the architects never thought of that because they're not teachers and they didn't ask the teachers. They're thinking of adults, and of course, adults aren't going to do that. But no. kids will be, kids are just, if they have an opportunity, they're going to take advantage of it because that's what kids do. Um, so it's just structure isn't bad and they really don't care. You know, I was the only teacher that said no cell phones at any point ever in my classroom. 
And they were just like, never. And I was like, no, and here's why. And then it just, they were like, it's fine if you just follow the rules. Absolutely. And then you learn. It's not that big of a deal. They, I mean, if you're giving like demerits for like an untied shoelace, which some schools have done, um, then that's, you know, it's a little much. Um, but something like walk calmly in the hallways or just, you know, don't have your head down, like please sit up. That's not like a prison sentence. Um, really, hyperbole is great for Twitter, um, but not for real life. Well, absolutely. And I think on that uh, very uh, sound uh, bit of wisdom there, I think um, we'll leave it. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed uh, chatting to you. Uh, we could go on and on. You've got so much to say. Hopefully at some point, if the, if the podcast continues and if you're willing, we can have you back. But uh, thank you. Thank you very much, um, Jasmine. Um, and uh, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Greg.